Hello, hello, and welcome again to 60 Minutes With and another one of our sound check episodes. My name is Steve Woolley, and this time it's Murder on the Dance Floor as we look at the Rolling Stones album Let It Bleed. Aha, you say? I have, for I have heard of the band that you speak of. Their singer has the moves like Jagger, albeit, albeit with the aid of a tube of Voltarol, and their guitar player is Captain Jack Sparrow's dad. On paper, the album should have been a disaster. 1969, the year of its release, was a nightmare for the band. Their guitarist, Brian Jones, was sacked by the band not long into recording, uh, mainly for being Brian Jones, and he was replaced by Mick Taylor, a youthful but extremely talented guitarist. Uh, not long after, though, Brian's body was found floating in a swimming pool in circumstances that are still debated to this day. Added to all of this, Keith Richards was in the early stages of a very, very long heroin addiction. Yet the band used their personal issues and the political and social unrest of the time as source material for their album. The music was a trademark mixture of rock, R&B and blues. You get a haunting slow ballad on You Can't Always Get What You Want, Southern Gothic Blues on Midnight Rambler, Jagger as a coke-fueled hornbag on the album's title, even self-deprecation on the rock out Monkey Man with Jagger joking, I'm a flea-bit peanut monkey, all my friends are junkies. So why this album, and why now? Well, I'll deal with the how in the second half, but what drew me to the album in the first place? I was a general a generation behind the Beatles and Stones, and was constantly told by elders and how they were the seminal bands, which caused me to take a contrary view and try my best to ignore them, which of course is impossible, as it is then as it is today but I was conscious that I needed to find my own Beatles and Stones so how did I get to this album it was mainly due to Graham Parsons and to the uninitiated Graham was a country singer musician and songwriter who shot to fame when he briefly joined the birds for their sweetheart of the rodeo album and in the process invented country rock he then left taking chris hillman with him to form the flying burrito brothers who made two beautiful albums before he went off to making two two incredible solo albums you can tell i like him and yes he will be the subject of a future podcast Graham was also an alcoholic and narcotics addict, and at the time of recording of Let It Bleed, he was Keith Richards' drug buddy. He died aged 26, don't they all, and his influence is firmly on this album. He got country blues on Love in Vain, country funk on Let It Bleed, and as you'll see on my first selection, which gets a bluegrass treatment. The album has only nine tracks, and boasted no singles, although many of the songs have appeared in numerous commercials and movie soundtracks. And in the case of Country Honk, our first selection, which got reworked with the addition of a Bobby Keys sax into a song that I guarantee will be played live by a band in a town somewhere near you tonight.
most of the presenters on 60 Minutes with, I grew up reading the music press and the enemy was the music paper of my choice as well as odd copies of Blues and Soul magazine and later The Face and I developed a fondness for some of the writers. I like the irreverence of Danny Baker and Sylvia Patterson, the polemic of Tony Barsons and Julie Burchill and the gonzo style of Nick Kent and Lester Bangs. Sadly, some of the music presses folded due to the influence of online media and I migrated to what the hipsters call long form and what I call books. I like Barney Hoskins' work on the Laurel Canyon set, John Savage's writing on punk and new wave and Joel Sell's writing on the American scene of the 60s and 70s. Joel co-wrote a book, The Peppermint Twist, about the about New York's infamous Pepper Club, which was the Studio 54 of its day, and where TV, pop and movie stars, politicians and the great and the good twisted the night away with local kids, before Joel then pulls the plug out from underneath us by revealing that the club was owned by a member of the Genovese crime family. So when I read last year that Joel was writing a book on Altamont, I immediately added it to my wish list on Barry Amazon's website. What I already knew was that Altamont was a Californian festival that the Stones played around the time of the release of Let It Bleed. It's obvious it's often mentioned alongside the Manson family murders as one of the events that ended the summer of love as the concert culminated with the death of Meredith Hunter, an 18-year-old black student who was stabbed to death by members of the Hells Angels. However, Joel's a veteran California music journalist and he's best able to tell the story in full. And it's one of those books you plow through in a couple of sittings, largely with your mouth open wide and shaking your head in disbelief. You don't have to be a Stones fan to read it. In fact, it helps, because you probably won't like them as much as you did when you finish it. The story he presents is... By 1969, the focus had gone to the West Coast, where bands like the Jefferson Aeroplane and the Grateful Dead were regularly playing free concerts in Golden Gate Park. Their ideals were that live music should be free, as bands could make their money on album sales. I know, oh boy, 50 years later, things have took 180 degree turns on that philosophy. The Grateful Dead sent an emissary to London with a bag of drugs, to visit the Rolling Stones in order to talk them into appearing as special guests at a free concert. The Stones were pretty keen on this idea as they were planning a US tour. Money had become short after Alan Klein had took over as manager and although Woodstock had been a commercial disaster they knew that there were a film and an album due out and they had similar ideas. They'd already started to design and build lighting rigs and they were going to use their own PA and equipment. This enabled them to be one of the first bands to put it on their own show rather than use the venue's own equipment. It also meant that they could double ticket prices. Of course any problems they had from the music press who criticised them for being breaded could be dismissed by saying well you know we're going to add a free concert at the end of this tour. The Stones decided to sort out the fine details while they're on on tour and invited some other bands to come and play, found a date and applied for a permit with the Golden Gate Park. 
Problems came when it was refused as it was clashed with a baseball game and they had to look round for an alternative place to play. A NASCAR track was found which had all the facilities necessary. Parking, concessions, toilets and all was going well until the track owners found out that the band were going to film the concert for a cinema release and asked for a share of the royalties. The band refused and went on to search for a new venue. Altamont itself was a run-down speedway track, the kind of place where stock car racing was king, and to this, 300,000 fans descended to see bands play on a hastily erected stage, which was just four foot high, and the supports were held together with twine. No food, no drinks were available, no toilet facilities, and the minimum medical support for a crowd that was dropping acid of unreliable quality. The first death came before the concert even started, when a fan died trying to swim an irrigation canal in order to gain access, and the current dragged him off to his death. The Rolling Stones hated cops, and decided to use the Hells Angels as security. Had previously done this at a Hyde Park concert, but as Joe Selvin said, some of the sons of apathy had turned up were on mopeds. The mistake they made was that they didn't use the acid-dropping angel mates of the Grateful Dead, and they decided to hire the badass Oakland chapter for $500 worth of beer. The concert started with the, the angels already pissed and beating up some of the members of Jefferson Aeroplane as they played on stage before they started on the audience. The security perimeter was a joke. It was a piece of string around the thickness of a washing-up line which separated the fans from the angels' bikes parked in front of the stage. The Flying Burrito Brothers and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young played pretty much without incident. But the Grateful Dead were not happy with the levels of violence and jumped on a chopper and headed home, which left a gap before the stones could play and the surging crowd clashing with Pilkew wielding angels. Tough guys in the crowd fancies their chances and rush to the front only to get beaten back. Patty Bredhoft had gone to the concert with her boyfriend Meredith Hunter who turned up in a cool-looking green suit and an afro. And just prior to leaving, he hesitated and said he had to go back in the house as he had forgotten his pistol. The results were well documented. Hunter got caught up in the fighting with the Angels, who had a reputation for racism as the Stones tried to calm things down. Alan Passaro, a member of the Els Angels, saw Hunter with a gun and fatally stabbed him. Camera footage was used as evidence later in court. Uh, some of it was captured by a cameraman called George Lucas. I wonder what happened to him. But the Angels were clever. They employed a black war veteran as a Passaro's defence lawyer and he was eventually acquitted but turned up dead years later with several thousand dollars in his pocket. The stones were choppered out after the concert and left the concert and left the country the next day with a reported one point eight million dollars and a string of unpaid hotel bills and car hire rentals. As a final sour net sour note to the to the event, the traffic was so bad as the fans left the concert, that a group pulled to the side of the road, lit a campfire and waited for the traffic to die down. 
They were then hit by a stolen car that careered down a grass verge, killing two people outright and putting another one in a car coma. The occupants of the stolen car escaped and were never caught. I later checked out the excellent life book that Keith Richards, Keith Richards wrote with James Fox, just to see his views on Altamont. He was rather dismissive. He blamed the authorities for not issuing permits. He blamed the angels for drinking rock-gut wine. Um, and then he finally added, well, people die at concerts. The old event got two pages, about the same amount of space he gives to a recipe for shepherd's pie. But let's go back a minute. In autumn 1969, in LA, a heavily pre pregnant backing singer called Mary Clayton received a phone call from her friend Jack Nish, who was mixed in the Let It Bleed album. He needed some vocals on a track. Mary didn't want the gig. She'd never heard the Rolling Stones, and it took her husband to convince her that, hey, these guys are actually big. Reluctantly, she headed for the Sunset Sound Recorder Studios. She hit the vocals in a couple of takes before heading off home. She mis miscarried some time later. But the song she became part of captured lightning in a bottle. The zeitgeist done in 4 minutes 31 seconds. The stones showed perfectly what was going on on the other side. The Vietnam War was still raging and protesters were still taken to the streets and college campuses across the western world and the struggle for equality was still a struggle rape and murder came the refrain with Keith's guitar open tuning echoing that the storm was still raging and they needed shelter
thanks for listening to this podcast. Uh, Joel Selvin's book, Altamont, is published by HarperCollins. Uh, and it's also available as an ebook from Play for £3.50. And last time I looked, it was the ridiculous price of £2.50 on Kindle. Uh, be sure to check out our website, that's 60 Minutes with .co.uk. We're on Facebook and we're on Insta- Instagram if you want naked photos of Mrs. Mills. You can follow us on Twitter at 60 Minutes With for news and competitions. You can follow Chris uh, at Dastardly Jabby, follow Tina at Spankly Spangler, and finally, finally if you wish to follow me, I'm at Solidaire01. Thanks to Yvonne for giving me the idea for this podcast, and to Cameron as always. Uh, I'll see you in a few weeks for a tale of youth, youth clubs, junk shops, and the greatest compilation album ever made. Bye.